please, to Isaiah chapter 49. Going back to Isaiah today, this little passage has, has been on my mind this last few days. Continuing just to dip in and out of Isaiah 40 to 55, where we have all this hope that is given to God's people Israel in exile in dark times. Isaiah 49 um, it's one of those passages, one of those messages where you sometimes just feel you don't have an awful lot to say, but hopefully uh, you'll be blessed, you'll be encouraged uh, by God's word, even just by the, some of the images and some of the pictures in the passage and the fact that Jesus is all over it. Let's, uh, let's read the first seven verses or so. We'll cover most of the chapter, but there will only be certain parts of it that will really linger on in detail. Isaiah 49, verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He doesn't tell you what the name is at this point. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And we'll stop there, but we will go on through the the rest of the chapter. This is the second of four songs in this section of Isaiah from 40 to 55. The first one was in chapter 42, where we read about a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That was the, the first one. And it can be difficult at sometimes when you're reading these chapters of Isaiah to figure out exactly who the writer is talking about. Because in a cryptic sort of a fashion, he uses the word servant to refer to the Messiah. And he also uses the word servant to refer to Israel. And it can be a little bit confusing. Uh, for example, in, in Isaiah forty two nineteen, Who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord? That is not the Messiah, okay? The Messiah does not have a problem with blindness. This is speaking of Israel who should have been God's servant. And the contrast is sort of made that Israel was supposed to represent God to the nations and be a light to the nations to which the nations could come. But Israel itself is blind and has no light. And again, going back to earlier messages in Isaiah, that's because of idolatry. That's because they have become like the things they worship. So in 42.19, that is not the Messiah servant. That's Israel. And in 44, we read uh, in verses 21 and 22, Israel, my servant, 
I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. That is not the Messiah. The Messiah does not need redeemed. And the Messiah does not need his, his, his sins to be swept away. So in, 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 in between Isaiah 42, the first servant song, and Isaiah 49, now the second one, there's quite a lot of references to Israel themselves. But now <clears throat> in chapter 49, this is not Israel, okay? This is the Messiah. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. This is not talk of Israel. This picture of a sharp sword coming out of his mouth would put you in mind, if you're familiar with it, with Isaiah 11, which is all about the coming Messiah, unmistakable. And one of the things that he has is a rod coming from his mouth with which to deal with his enemies. And this servant in verse 5 is the one who will bring Israel back to God. Israel can't bring Israel back to God. All right. So again, we're talking about someone different from the nation. And not only in verse 5 will he bring Israel back to God, but in verse 6, God says of the servant, you're too good a servant just to bring Israel back. You're too big. You're too special for, for that to be your sole purpose. I'm actually going to make you a light for the Gentiles. And my salvation is not going to just be to Israel, but the, the, to the ends of the earth. So that's who we're talking about here. We're talking about a servant who, who is one through whom God's character is going to be seen, his splendor, his light, and his salvation is going to expand to the entire world. And, and back to Luke, which I'm thinking about a lot as, as at the minute again, because we're heading back there eventually. Whenever old Simeon received baby Jesus at the temple, he quoted from this chapter. And he says over the little child, My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Simeon in Luke chapter 2 connects this servant from Isaiah 49 with the baby that's in his arms. This is talking about Jesus. This is a passage about Jesus in, in Isaiah. 700 years roughly before Jesus was born and we have this description of him. And there's a confusing little thing in verse 3 of chapter 49 because we do get a name for the servant, and the name of the servant is Israel, which just seems to then completely negate everything I've just said. Because I've just said, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah, this is not the nation of Israel. But as you read the passage and as you look at this, you realize this is not the nation. It might be the name Israel, but it's not the nation of Israel. It's one person, one individual who is going to be perfect Israel. I have a real bee in my bonnet about this. And it comes out again and again and again. The fact that Jesus was redefining and expanding what it meant to be Israel, to be the people of God, no longer confined to an ethnic nation of people descended from Abraham, the 12 tribes of Israel, but now the 12 disciples and then the entire church has been grafted in 
and what it means to be Israel is far bigger than what it originally meant. And it's all centered on Jesus. And although the name in 49.3 says, you are my servant Israel, that's a name given to Jesus, who is perfect Israel, the perfect son of God, the perfect representation of the character of God, who will show light and salvation to the whole world. And I wonder, is this one of the passages? We all of these questions we're going to ask when we get to heaven. And, 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 and in my simple mind, there's, there's a big cinema room in heaven. One of those sort of home, one of those things that you kid out, Scott, you know, the home cinema thing with a, you know, with a big rig and the, and the, and the space. And you can just go in there and select, I want to watch this part of my Bible <laughs> and see what it was like. And in you go and you say, right, give me the road to Emmaus. I want to know what Jesus said to those two. When it says that he went, we went to the scriptures and he showed them all of the things concerning himself. I wonder, was this chapter in Isaiah one of them? So Jesus is in the passage. And in verse 8, we, we read something that Paul quotes again to prove that the passage is about Jesus. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. This is God speaking to the servant who I'm identifying as the Messiah, Jesus. And Paul quotes that in 2 Corinthians and he says, now is the time of, of, of salvation. Now is the day of the, the Lord's favor, indicating that Paul himself also applied it to Jesus. And I want you to see a few things before we hit the verses that I want to linger on this morning, a few things that this servant will do. Because this is one of those passages where I, I just feel as I go through it, there'll be, there'll be a wee bit that'll connect with somebody. And there'll be a wee bit that'll connect with somebody else. And then there'll be another wee bit that'll connect with somebody else. So here's three things that the servant will do. At the end of verse 8 of chapter 49, he will restore. It's going to be part of the role of the Messiah. He will restore the land. Remember, these people are in exile. They're in Babylon. Their land has been taken from them and it needs to be restored. And one of the things that Messiah will do is restore the land. So he will restore, restoration. And he will reassign its desolate inheritances. Just pause for a moment on on those two words, desolate inheritances. Because it just got me thinking this week, Things that are ours, but we have not laid hold on. A desolate inheritance. Something that has rightfully been given to us, been left to us, and we have not claimed it, and it lies desolate. And I just want to throw that image in your mind, but, and, and then I'm going to move on. But where, where are the things that, that you as an individual, maybe as a family, maybe as a church, the things that ours that, that, that are ours rightfully, that are our inheritance, but they lie desolate. We have not claimed them. We have not taken them. We have not moved into them. Jesus came to reassign those desolate inheritances. So he restores, he reassigns, and in verse 9, this beautiful proclamation of release for the prisoners. I love this. I, I, reading this one night in a prayer meeting a couple of months ago, and it just, it just struck me. Say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. And that, that's just like Jesus. 
because he would stand at the tomb of Lazarus and he, he didn't he didn't say too many words. Jesus was quite economical with words a lot of the time. He just said, Lazarus, come out. <coughs> or he would say, you know, be free. For those in darkness, be free. Jesus would go to the blind man and he would say in Aramaic to the blind man, Ephatha, which means be opened. Just these short little commands that he would give when he's speaking to to those who are suffering from sickness, from being demonized, and even the dead. Jesus would throw out these little sharp commands in a couple of words. And then as the passage goes on, we get shepherd imagery in verses 9 and 10. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. Even that, what a beautiful illustration. A pasture on a barren hill. There is a way to pray. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He has compassion on them and he will guide them and lead them at springs of water. That's the shepherd. That is Jesus again leading his people. And we have in verses 11 and 12, God saying, I will turn mountains into roads and highways will be raised up. And that's what, again, it's a flip of Isaiah 40 where we are told in Isaiah 40 to prepare the way for the Lord. We're told God is coming, prepare the way for him. And now it's flipped. God is saying, I'm bringing you out of exile. I'm going to prepare a way for you. And at the end of all of that, in verse 13, there's just this outburst of praise. One of those moments happens again and again in Isaiah where you have like all creation is singing. This outburst of of praise about what God has done. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people. This whole section of Isaiah starts with a, a command to comfort my people. And he has compassion on his afflicted ones. And everybody's singing. The mountains are singing and the trees are clapping their hands and everything's just going nuts. But there's someone who's not singing. And here we slow down. Someone's not singing. In verse 14. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now Zion is a way of speaking about all of Israel. All the promises that we had in the first 13 chapters of what God is doing. Huge big pictures of salvation. Not just in the now but in the, in the future. Going to the ends of the earth. All the praise that's going on all around them. And all that Zion can do. All that Israel. All that God's people can do is say. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Now. You could be really cynical and you could be really nasty and really harsh with people's hearts and you could say something horrible like, there's always one. There's always one who doesn't want to sing. There's always one who doesn't want to participate with everybody else. There's always one child at the party who won't play the games. There's always one person in the house of praise who will not praise. You could be really horrible and you could say something like that. Or you could actually 
take the heart of God. And you can say that in any gathering of people, there'll always be one. No, in fact, there'll be two. No, there'll be three. There might be four. There'll be people for whom life is just currently such a challenge and is so traumatic that they feel forsaken and they feel forgotten. And to make them feel bad about it is the most unchristlike thing you can possibly do. And I want to see how God responds to these people who say to him in light of everything that he's done that they, this, this voice pipes up and says, the Lord has forsaken me and he's forgotten me. As long as the nation of Israel lay in ruins, as long as those walls around Jerusalem lay in ruins, the people were depressed and they found it really hard to believe and to have hope that there could be any future. They're still in Babylon. And this message is coming from Isaiah or from the disciples of Isaiah who have preserved it. All of these lofty things about God. And do you ever sit in a scenario where some punter at the front that looks a bit like me is saying lots of lofty things about God and you're thinking, but God's forsaken me. I feel forgotten. I don't feel the love of God right now. There is nothing wrong with feeling like that. Nothing. We have a book in the Bible called the Psalms and it's full of lament and it's full of honesty about a lot of it coming from a man called David and from others who know God, who love God, who follow God, who worship God, but who are also really, really honest whenever things suck. To say, this sucks. This is a very typical human condition in life. There will be moments along the journey when the darkness is so intense that we feel forgotten and that we feel forsaken. Where the realities of present life are so overwhelming in the present, in the moment, on Sunday the 5th of February 2023, it's all just so intense and so real that these big grand promises of God for the first 13 verses just don't hit the spot. Because we feel so broken, so tired, so painful, so much trauma through whatever disappointments, broken relationships, exhaustion, stress, whatever it may be. And you, you look at the first 12 verses of this chapter and you say, well, those, that's lovely. That's lovely, but I'm still depressed. That's lovely, but I'm still exhausted. I still have feelings inside me. I'm still surrounded by unanswered prayers. And you know what? To talk like that is honest and it's raw and it's good. <laughs> And it's following in the footsteps of the people who wrote the Bible. It doesn't say that the, you know, Zion don't, these people of Israel don't say, I don't believe any of what you've just said. They believe it. But it's not getting into their hearts and it's not affecting them. And it's really, really important to listen to what your heart is saying to you. Those, those raw feelings of forsakenness and, and being forgotten, it's really important to listen to that and to not fake it or gloss over it. How many of us have, you know, painted over something or glossed over something just in a practical you know, way around the house, hoping that, that the damp won't come back through or whatever? 
Don't, don't gloss over these feelings in your heart of being forsaken and being forgotten, but make sure you don't only listen to them. Because if you, if, you, if you ignore what your heart is saying to you, you're headed for trouble. But if you only listen to what your heart is saying to you, you're headed for trouble. You've got to learn how to talk to yourself, how to talk to your heart. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? It doesn't gloss over it, doesn't silence, doesn't say, Soul, shut up. Heart, be quiet. Inner man, just be silent. And, and No, he's listening and he's, almost, he's, he's engaging in conversation with himself in Psalm 42. And we need to learn to do that. We need to learn to let these disappointments that are in our hearts be vocalized. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Anybody feel like that? And what's God's response to this? this? This declaration that I am forgotten by him and I am forsaken by him. Is God's response anger? Is it rebuke? How dare you speak like that about me after all I've done? Let's see how God responds to these people who are who are despondent and despairing. He doesn't say you, you need to have more faith. We have some cliches that we kick around sometimes in Christian circles for people who are really broken and really hurting. You just need to have more faith. You just need to stand on the promises of God. You just need to praise God more. And all of those things, yes, there is truth to them. But sometimes we can, we can be harsh and heavy-handed with people's hearts when they're going through trauma and difficulty. I want you to see what God does. God stops, first of all. He stops. In Isaiah 49, we have 12 verses of just huge theology of the servant of God and what he's going to do and, and how he's going to set people free and lead them like a, like a shepherd out of exile. And oh, it's massive, it's massive. And then this wee voice pipes up and just says, I still feel like dirt. I still feel like you've overlooked me. You might do that for everyone else. And God, he's on this big, massive roll in the chapter, all of this truth coming out. And he doesn't just say, you be quiet, I'll talk to you at the end of the lesson. He doesn't silence or suppress that voice. He stops and he engages with it. He just, he, he, it's like Jesus. Jesus does it over and over again in the Gospels. He stops. He can be interrupted. He's, he's got Jairus beside him and he's marching to Jairus' house with the people following him and they're on, boom, focus on Jairus' house. And then this woman comes along and grabs at the, the hem of his garment and he stops. Love it. Stops. He always, I'm, I'm doing a, a module at the minute on, on biblical counseling and, and the, the teacher was just pointing out in the first lecture how Jesus always has time to give his full attention to those who interrupt him. Always. Amazing. And, and it's, you never get the sense when you're reading about Jesus that he's sort of just, he's doing two things at once and that he's given her a wee bit of attention as he, as he sort of continues on towards Jairus' house. No, no, no. Full attention. 100%. No problem. God is interruptible. And in this chapter, God gets interrupted and he appeals to the human heart with this beautiful picture. Two pictures, two metaphors. In Isaiah 49, 15, he gives the metaphor of a nursing mother. This is, this is how he, he responds to the people who have declared to him that he has forgotten them. He says, can a mother forget? You say, I, I've forgotten you. Can a mother forget the baby 
at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. Can a nursing mother, can a breastfeeding mother forget her child? It would be quite hard to do that. Physically, the mother will be in discomfort if she does not feed the child. She does not need an alarm or a reminder. I live on reminders and alarms and buzzers and notifications to get me through the day and do everything I have to do. A breastfeeding mother does not need an alarm to let her know when she needs to feed. And, and I don't know about you, I have a contingency alarm. Does anybody have a contingency? You set an alarm in the morning, but then you've got a contingency alarm, which is just further away from the bed <laughs> and louder in case the first one fails. Uh, and if, in, case, in case mother somehow forgets to feed the child, there is a contingency alarm of the child screaming, <laughs> wanting to be fed. So physically, a mother can't forget her child. Emotionally, she can't forget her child because as she feeds the baby, and here I am talking about what I don't really know about, but oxytocins are released, which are a bonding hormone that just cement and, and, and concrete that bond between mother and child. So physically, she can't forget. Emotionally, she can't forget. And she has this unconditional love for the child. Tim Keller says the relationship of mother and baby is one of give and take. The mother gives and gives and gives and the baby takes and takes and takes <laughs> and gives nothing back. It's unconditional. And this is the picture of God as he stops his discourse and deals with this interruption. This is the beautiful picture that he gives. And then he says, well, I suppose it's possible at the end of the verse, she may forget. A human mother may forget. Some human mothers are, there is wickedness in the world and there is neglect and there are, there are mothers who are not good. So he says, yes, I guess it is possible that, that a human mother in extreme situations may forget, but I won't forget you. He says, take the picture of a mother and a child and extend that on and you've got the love that God has for his people. So that's words that God gives to this interruption that I've been forgotten or forsaken. But sometimes words aren't enough for people. Sometimes people want action. <laughs> they want something that's concrete and, and not just I'm saying this, but, but here's what I'm doing or here's what I've done. First John 3.18 says, Dear children, not us, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So if we want an action to go with the words, God goes on in verse 16 of Isaiah 49 with this second picture. We've had the mother and baby, and now we have another picture. See, he says, look, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Engraved. Engraved. Now, engraving is permanent. I'm thinking right now of a tree at my granny's house that my older brother cut his name into the bark of it in the early 1980s. And it's still there. <laughs> Engraving is permanent. Nothing will take this off. Nothing will remove it. And engraving also is a work of art. It's not a coarse chipping. If you ever watch like a, an old cowboy movie or something and you'll see that you know, cousin Ike who got shot by the bad guy and you'll see this ropey looking, you know, cross made out of wood with, with the name sort of scratched into it. No, no, no. Engraving is a work of art. This is artistry. 
And the only other place where you read in the Bible of, is name, of names being engraved is back in Exodus 28, where we read in the, in the explanation of the tabernacle and the furniture of the tabernacle and the, the, the garments worn by the priest that there's a thing called an ephod, like a breastplate. And it's made of gold and pur- blue and purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. And what they were to do with this breastplate was to take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six on one stone, six on the other. And then whenever the, br- the, the, the priest put this breastplate on and went before the Lord, it was a memorial in verse 12 of Exodus 28 before the Lord. The priest would go in and he'd have the names etched onto the breastplate and he would walk into the presence of God in the tabernacle and that would be a memorial reminding God of his people. And the engraving was done not with some sort of funky laser that we might have nowadays for doing real intricate engraving. The engraving was done using a hammer and a spike. Hammer and a spike. That's how the name was etched into the stones. And you think, oh, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? You know, these stones with with my name on it and, and the priest comes in before God with my name written on the stones. But no, no, suddenly it becomes a horrendous picture because it's not engraved on stones, it's engraved on the palms of his hands. Not cute anymore. (laughs) We had the cute picture of the nursing mother, the beauty and the intimacy and the tenderness. But now we have this, this more unpleasant image of an engraving on the palms of his hands. See, this is the most visible place. Those of you that aren't that hot at using a homework diary in school, where does your homework normally end up? It normally ends up there, written on your hands. Or if you have something to do later in the day, a quick scribble, and you know it can be comical looking at some people's hands at about 5 or 6 p.m., thinking, how are you going to figure all that out and, and get it all done? This, we, we write on our hands because we're going to see. You don't write your homework on the back of your knee. Right? You're not going to see it. Your hands are always before you. You use your hands. Everything you do, you're using the palms of your hands in particular. Hands are amazing. remember speaking at at Dad's funeral last year and I spoke at length about his hands. He had these amazing hands. And one of the challenging things that that young artists will be asked to do is is a study in hands, drawing, sketching somebody's hands because they're so intricate and so awesome. And a slave would have had his master's name tattooed on his hands. So if you were owned by, I don't know, some slave master called Cornelius or something like that, you would have had Cornelius written on your hand to show that you were devoted to him. As a slave, you were devoted to your master. You had his name on your hand, but it was never the other way around. You never had the master having the name of the slave tattooed on his hand. Never. But God says, I've got your name on my hand to show that I'm devoted to you. 
we talk about de- devotional life, when we talk about being devoted to God, and of course that's absolutely correct, but God's devoted to us. God has our name engraved on his hand. And there are perfectly good words in Hebrew that, that could have been used for tattoo or for ink or for something like that. But this is engraving. This is a hammer and this is a spike to make a permanent mark that will never go away. And he says, your walls are ever before me. What were the the people of Israel worried about, concerned about? They're concerned about their broken down walls. The walls of of Jerusalem lying in ruins. And he says, "I, I see it. It's before me all the time. I've got you engraved on the palms of my hands. The things that are broken in your life, the things that you're worried about, that you want to see restoration and rebuilding come from, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forsaken. I see it always. Your walls, you fill in the blank there, whatever you want, whatever your concern is. God says to you today, it's ever before me. Every time I do anything, I see my hands. That thing that you think is forgotten, that you've prayed about and you've brought to God and you've other people bringing to God and and you can very easily slip into a mode of thinking, I'm forgotten and I'm forsaken. No, he says, I see it all the time. It's always before me. He goes on in the passage before we close. A couple of nice pictures that I want to just again fire at you because they might bless you. Are we cold? Could we get the heat on? Is that... The man at the heat says it's not cold, but what does everybody else think? <laughs> Your children, in verse 17, hasten back. And those who led you waste depart from you. Listen to Eugene Peterson's rendering of this in the message. Love it. Your builders are faster than your wreckers. Love it. Those who are at the job of rebuilding. Sometimes we can look around us and we can see destruction and we can see lives falling apart. God's people, God wants a people who build and restore faster than the destruction. Who overtake it. Your builders are faster than your wreckers. When God gets moving, he moves at speed. Sometimes we get frustrated that it's taken a long time. 70 years in exile, a long time. 70 years with the walls and ruins, a long, long time. But once God got going, those walls went up fast. What was it, 52 days? Once God gets moving, he moves fast. And he says, your builders are faster than your wreckers. There's one lovely picture. Here's another one. In verse 20, a picture of expansion. As God's people come out of exile and back to the land, there is this claim in verse 20, this place is too small for us. We need to expand. That was something on the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. This, this beautiful picture came in the prayer meeting of a, of a tapestry expanding, a tapestry. And you know the way at the edge of a tapestry or a, or a weave, it's maybe, it's maybe tied to, to stop it fraying and to stop it opening. But the picture was very much of one that wasn't tied, that was able to expand in all directions. God says to his people that this land that you're so concerned about, it's going to be too small. There's going to be so many of you that, that, that it will be too small and you will ask for more space, more room to expand. And here's another beautiful picture in the same verse. And I know I'm just bombarding you with stuff, but this is the way it's been as I've thought about this over the last few days. The children born during your bereavement. 
Another beautiful picture that, what's bereavement? Bereavement is death and it's grief and it's sadness. Bereavement is the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me and all around me I'm dealing with grief and trauma and challenge. But even in the midst of it, God's saying, I'm working and I'm bringing forth new life even in the most lifeless of moments. Is there any moment in the experience of life apart from your own death is there any moment other than bereavement where you are so aware of death and so unaware of life <laughs> and god says even in that moment i'm working i'm bringing i i'm bringing children during your time of grief i am bringing forth children and what he's talking about in context is the gentiles who will come into the kingdom of god and cause israel to expand as i mentioned earlier Back to these hands as we close. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, hammer and spike. In John chapter 20, we have a doubter called Thomas. And Thomas doesn't see Jesus on resurrection morning. And Thomas isn't sure. He finds it hard to, to believe what's going on. And Jesus appears in the upper room and he says to Thomas, look at my hands. With another doubter, with another one who would say, Thomas would say, he forsook us. God took us on this journey of following Jesus and now he's forgotten us, he's forsaken us, it's all fallen apart. And Jesus appears to him and says to him, look at my hands and just again I want to I want to see that I want to see that moment I want to feel it I want to I want to be in the the intensity of it and the rest of the disciples watching on as Jesus holds out his hands and the wonderful thing about his resurrected body all sorts of cool stuff he could do he could walk through walls and he could just vanish from one place and and be somewhere else and but he still has the scars and it's like Whenever Moses and Elijah were seen at the transfiguration, they were recognizable. The, 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 the body that Jesus had after his, his resurrection is recognizable and still bears the marks. And still he did not, as he rose and ascended into heaven, they did not then see his body just sort of floating back to earth. He didn't discard it. He didn't cast it off again. He took on, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then there was never a time when the word stopped being flesh. He kept that body. He still has it. He's in glory in a glorified, resurrected body, but there's scars on it, on his hands. And he shows them to Thomas and he shows them to us today who feel forsaken and forgotten and unloved and overlooked, he shows us those hands to say, you are loved. You're loved. And it's nice being loved, isn't it? Isn't it nice when somebody likes you? Isn't it even nicer when somebody loves you? It makes you feel good. And if we're loved by someone of this magnitude, <laughs> with a love of this depth and intensity, that should change us. That should put a fountain, as Tim Keller says, that should put a fountain of joy at the center of your life that no circumstances and no tragedy can put a cork in. Because nothing changes that love. Who shall separate us 
from the love of Christ, Paul says. And then he goes on and the end sums it all up and says, Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Think of the nursing mother. Think of the engraved hands. Nothing can separate you from his love. He stops his big theological discourse and he just talks to that one who raises the voice and says, but I feel unloved. And he says, right, let's just stop everything. Just like that woman who came to Jesus. And if the words in Romans 8 are nice but aren't enough, and you want action, if your love language is action, not words, well then in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And one of the most frustrating things, I think, about, about the cross, not a frustrating thing about the cross, but one of the things that we tend to forget it, or we tend because it was so long ago to, to somehow diminish it or someone will say whose, whose life is a bit of a mess or, or someone will look at society and say well, God would just come and do something <laughs> if God would just come into society and do something then I could believe in him and you're just like he did <laughs> he did he has and it's, again, it's back to that metaphor of a mother with, with, a, with an infant. That infant is not going to say at any stage when it is an infant or when it's older, thank you for feeding me. <laughs> I remember all those times you fed me. Thank you for doing it. No, they have no recollection of it. It was so long ago. And we sometimes do with that with a cross. We have, it's so long ago that we, it, it drifts from our recollection. And we need to get it and ram it into our hearts because traumatic times will come. And if the truth of God is just a wee bit of devotional reading, we will not stand. We have to have truth rammed in about who he is, this nursing mother, and what he's done, these engraved hands, so that we'll stand and know that we're loved whenever circumstances and unanswered prayers and failures tell us that we're not loved. We need to have some truth within us. That's why we teach this again and again. That's why you should meditate on it. And that's why we're going to have a meal. And I'm, I genuinely apologize that we haven't had one in 2023 before now. Because the meal is an invitation to look at his hands. It's so much more than food. It's so much more than a bit of banter and a bit of light fellowship and, and spend some time together. It is so much more. What we're about to do, I remember saying this to someone and they looked at me as if I'd lost it. What we're about to do is supernatural. You're about to have a supernatural experience over a bowl of soup. As you eat the bread, look at his hands. And as you drink the wine, look at his hands. And as you look at one another, the church... Look at his hands and be reminded. Make this an exercise that over the next hour or two, what you're doing is you're ramming some truth down into your heart about how loved you are. You are not forsaken. You are not forgotten. You are loved. And Jesus stands before God day and night with those hands. Father, look at all these names. They're big hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. And Lord, I pray for those this morning who sit and who have been sitting and feel forsaken and forgotten. Lord, would you bless their honesty? If they're, if they're just in their hearts being honest with you right now, bless that, Lord. 
Lord, take away all shame that would be associated with feeling unloved. All shame that would be associated with disappointment and heartbreak and disillusion. And I pray, Father, that you would just overwhelm each of us afresh with your love. That we look at those hands. That we will see that nursing mother. That we will understand the intimacy and the connection that you have with your people. And Lord, that you will strengthen those whose knees are a bit wobbly, Lord, whose feet are on shaky ground because of whatever is going on and has been going on. Lord, that you will steady them, steady them with this picture of your love and your commitment and your devotion to them, Lord. And as we eat together, oh Lord, that your hands will be before us at all times. And as we worship together, come Holy Spirit, speak Move, encourage, build your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.